0: This is Inside the Truck, presented by Summer Skates. Show your game off the ice. Inside the Truck, pulling back the curtain on sports television production. Here is Steve Lansky and Paul Hemming.
1: I'm Steve Lansky. I'm in my 42nd year of working in sports media. I've worked as a producer for Hockey Night in Canada. I've produced the CFL on CBC, including the Grey Cup. And I produce SportsNet's Hockey Studio. On Twitter, I'm at Big Mouth Sports. And I'm Paul Hemming.
2: I've been a live sports TV director for over 20 years. I've directed the NHL, CFL, and World Juniors for TSN, the NHL, and Hockey Night in Canada for SportsNet. Currently, I'm the director for the Carolina Hurricanes on Valley Sports and can be found
1: on social media at From Ice Level. Episode 28, my friend, and like a few episodes lately, I'm not. I'm not bringing much to the table, but before we started as a true teammate, you gave me the, the fantastic pick me up line. What was it? I just said, Steve,
2: you just tee me up for 28 and I'll tell you what club to pull from the bag. (laughs) Thank
1: God. Thank God. He's (laughs) here folks. Episode 28. So what's the best 28 you got? My best 28 Edmonton Oilers, Lance Nethery. That cannot be. Lance Nethery cannot be our best 28.
2: Well, excellent choice, Steve. Um, (laughs) And and as our listeners know, this always comes back to our favorite teams, right? That's true. For me, it's the Detroit Red Wings, the Detroit Lions, or the Kansas City Royals. So uh, leading off, we'll start with hockey. My favorite number 28. I close my eyes. I can picture him wearing this sweater right now. Is number 28 from your Detroit Red Wings, Reed
1: Larson. Remember him? Oh yeah, good good defenseman on some. Oh my God, awful mm-hmm. Detroit Red Wings teams. Awful. Thanks for the reminder. Yeah, no problem. Mm-hmm. He could blast the puck, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, yeah. I think for a long time he was the highest scoring American born player in the NHL. I think Joey Mullen might have passed him, but he was that guy forever. I would not have wanted to be in front of a Reed Larson slap shot. Nope. Uh, staying in uh, the Motor City
2: uh, from my beloved. Detroit Lions, number one in your hearts, but number 28 in your program, defensive back Bracey Walker. You remember him, Steve? I'm going to go with who? No.
1: <laughs> I didn't think so.
2: No. Yeah. yeah. The reason why uh, Bracey Walker holds a special place to me, and <laughs> as you know, Steve, being a huge uh, line season's ticket holder for a number of years, I've been to my fair share of games there. And at the team store, they have a rack in the back that sells used game equipment um, and, uh, use official sideline stuff. So I would, every game I would go to, I would drag some piece of paraphernalia home from that. I had everything, hoodies, football pants. I don't know why I bought football pants. So I never played football or wore them, but <laughs> they do still have them. But the Jersey that's hanging in my closet that I'm probably most proudest of was a Lions third jerseys that they were on Thanksgiving number 28, Bracey Walker.
1: Nice. And you bought that off the rack. I did. Yeah. And that would still be on that rack. If you hadn't <laughs> bought it, you know that, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh,
2: I can't believe I paid 250 American for it anyway. Oh um, no, you so, did not. Yeah. Well, it was worth it though. Oh. Right. It was there. It was their Thanksgiving thirds. Oh, so everybody had to have God. one of those. Anyway, six degree of separation moment here. Ask me where Bracy Walker plays college football.
1: I bet you he went to the same elementary school, high school, and college that you went to, correct? Uh, incorrect three times, Steve. He did not play for the Northdale Norsemen.
2: He did not play for the Lucas Vikings. And he certainly didn't play for the Ryerson Rams because they only had a Nerf Football Intramural League that hosted once a week in the quad. Uh, yeah, they did. He, he played at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, which is about 30 minutes from where I'm sitting right now speaking with you. So. Little six degree of separation, wrap around, put a bow tie on that for Bracey Walker. Bracey Walker. What about baseball? Who we got in baseball? Okay, so again, you know, my favorite baseball team is the Kansas City Royals. So I mm-hmm. did some
1: homework here, Steve. You Do you remember third baseman Greg Nettles? He played for the Cleveland Indians and he played for the Yankees. He was great. He caught the last out in the Bucky F and Dent game when Yaz fouled out. Yeah, Greg Nettles was really good. He was no Brooks Robinson, but he was good.
2: Well, none of that matters, Steve, because did you know he had, a, he had a brother, Jim?
1: Oh, no, I did didn't you know, know that? that. No, I don't mm-hmm. think I did. He
2: also played in the majors. Oh, in geez. 1979, he suited up for my Kansas City Royals. Oh, jeez. And you know what number he wore, Steve? Please
1: tell me double zero, but I'm sure that's wrong. Oh, that was Al Oliver. <laughs> he, wore, he wore number 28. Al Oliver did wear zero, that's right. <laughs> like, how many games? Seven.
2: Yeah, seven it, was games. Under, it was under a baker's dozen. But yeah, but he he wore 28 for the Kansas City Royals in 1979. So there of you go. Of
1: course he did. Can we can we put the 28 bar a little higher? Like Gaylord <laughs> Perry wore 28, didn't he? Yeah. Cheater, though. He cheated. Oh, well, if you cheat all the time, like <laughs> you never stop cheating. Is that even cheating? Isn't cheating something no. you do once in a while to gain an advantage? He cheated every game.
2: If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. So Gaylord tried all the time. He did. Bert, uh, Bert Blylevin or B, Bert Be Home by 11, as Chris Berman used to like to call him on ESPN Sports Center, was also 28. Not he bad. He could pitch.
1: He could pitch. Yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, football, Adrian Peterson and Marshall Falk, a couple of guys who could deliver the mail. They weren't bad either. No. 28. Yeah. But my favorite 28 in hockey, Steve, and it's only because I love the jersey or the sweater. Um, And I loved the lighting at the Chicago Stadium, and I loved watching him fly down the wing and pick the top corner with Steve Larmer.
0: Right winger Steve Larmer played 15 NHL seasons with the Blackhawks and Rangers. He had 441 goals and 1,012 points in just over 1,000 career games. Larmer won the 1983 Calder Trophy in Chicago and hoisted the 94 Stanley Cup with Mike Keenan's New York Rangers.
1: Steve Larmer, highly underrated. Mm-hmm. Steve Larmer, Dennis Savard, Al Secord—they were—they were kind of the only Hawks line in the early '80s, mid '80s. But they kept coming up against the Oilers, and they had no chance. They were a really good line. I think Dennis Savard would say Steve Larmer might be the best player he ever
2: played with. All right, partner. Time now for mailbag. Um, this one comes to us via Twitter from at Steve Clark Media. Right. As a play-by-play guy, for the Niagara Ice Dogs and the OHL, if I'm not mistaken, as a play-by-play guy, really enjoyed episode 27 of At Inside the Truck with At Big Mouth Sports and At from ice Level. Love hearing about what goes on during a live production and the intensity of the playoffs for the crew. We'll be going back and checking out other episodes for sure. So I thought that was really nice of Steve to take the time to send that. So thank you, Steve, for listening.
1: And hopefully you're enjoying episode 28. I was going to say, if you like 27, he's going to like 28, because it's a bit more of the same. Have you ever been to a Niagara Ice Dogs home game? Not in the new rink, in the old rink, the Jack Gatecliff Arena. No, I I haven't, man. That sounds fancy. I have not been there. It is not fancy. There were about six rows, and if you stood up too fast, you'd hit your head on the ceiling. Oh, I hate it when that happens. Yeah, but they would black the Jack, so everybody wore black. All the Ice Dogs fans wore black. I don't know what year I was there for the OHL final. Wow. Yeah, it seems like about a decade ago. I think they played the London Knights, and I think they lost. Very excited fans to have that team, which moved from Mississauga, right? They were the Mississauga Ice Dogs. Don, Don Cherry's famous Mississauga Ice Dogs. Okay, Steve, time now for after
2: the pod. If you'll be so kind, I'd like to indulge on this one, and it all is has to do with PGA Golf from the weekend at the Memorial. Rock and roll, baby.
1: Did you manage to see any of it? I didn't see much of the memorial. I've been to that course. It's like literally impossible to find. It's tucked in a neighborhood in Dublin, Ohio. You can't even see it from the road. It's really weird that way. Have you heard of the fitness tracker whoop? Have you heard of that? Even if I have, it doesn't matter because you need to tell me about it so that everybody knows about it. So Whoop is is a like a biometric band that's tied
2: to your um you know s- tied to your device uh, or either be a watch or a phone and it it registers all your biometrics information anyway it's the official wearable of the PGA Tour as the cool kids say yeah oh yeah and so uh, it allows you to basically track everything but uh, what we're going to talk about here today is heart rate and heart rates of players so Justin Thomas and Rory McIlroy Um, are athlete investors uh, with this $1.2 billion company. uh, They've also joined the likes of Kevin Durant from the NBA and Patrick Mahomes from the NFL. Anyway, this past weekend at the Memorial, they uh, broadcast live heart rates from Rory and Justin. Just the two guys? Yeah, during the round. Those are the only two I saw. Got it. um, Anyway. Uh, did they have more maybe perhaps i didn't see any of the other ones but uh they have a five-year partnership with the pga tour and and so i think they're sort of tiptoeing in the shallow end of of incorporating um their their data uh, into broadcast so my question to you is what are your thoughts on biometrics being a part of golf of of any broadcast i guess sports
1: broadcast you know it's funny uh you'd ask about that because like Oh, God, 25 years ago, 30 years ago. I remember having a conversation with Nick Price, who was on the PGA Tour. He won an Open Championship. I also think he won a PGA. I'm not sure I'd have to look it up. And we talked about how when you're on the tee, you kind of have one mindset and one level of adrenaline. But by the time you get to the green, you've tried to lower that right down. So where your heart rate is as low as it can be. And I've always thought it would be ultra cool to be able to see, I guess, the heart rates and a few other things, respiratory rate of certain athletes, car drivers, I thought would be really cool golfers, too, because I would think it would be one thing on the tee, one other thing on the green. And I think it's where sports is going to go. I got to be honest. But you don't feel it crosses
2: any personal boundaries.
1: No, no. I mean, are you holding a gun to my head that I that I wear the the biometric receiver i i don't think that you are i i'm not sure it should be mandatory for all 156 guys teeing off in a pga tour event i think if you wear it voluntarily and we've agreed on what information will be visible to the viewer it it can't be 10 different things that i don't know about if it's only heart rate i think that's fine what about you Um, you know, I, I was amazed by it. I I couldn't, I mean, I was forget the golf. I
2: stopped watching where the ball ended up, uh, because I was more Uh. interested in what their heart rate was. And, and not that that's a bad thing. I I thought it was, uh, extremely revealing standing over a putt, you know, worth thousands of dollars, ultimately at the end of the day, Rory's heart rate is like 80, 81, 82, 80. I'm like, that blows me away. Like if that was me, it, like I'd be exploding at 200 beats a minute, you know, and JT, you know, a tricky shot from, you know, the rough over a bunker, you know, to stick it two feet, you know, is like 90, 89, 87, 90, 91, 87, whatever, you know, it's just like, I'm like, Oh my goodness. Like that again, Like uh, they would, <laughs> there would have to be four digits on the, on the reader to, at that point for me. Cause I, you know, so the, the part I was really amazed with is, is these, Pro golfers on the exterior, most of them anyway, seem cool as a cucumber. Um, You know, but I always thought like underneath it was like the old you know adage of a swan, right? Very graceful up top, but down underneath it's going a mile a minute. No, they're not. They're actually going eighty beats a minute, which I
1: I I found was was really interesting. That's one of the things we talked to Price about was that you've got to lower that. You have to be able to do it. So that's kind of cool. I'd like to know their resting heart rates. They didn't give you those, eh?
2: No, no. These they only just. D- displayed the information you know as as they were in their you know mid shot or pre-shot or whatever in their in their uh, address kind of thing got it the other the other moment from the weekend that i want to talk to you about was um the john rom situation are you familiar with that
1: well i know he got dq'd but i i was not watching i did not see any of the broadcast at that time
2: okay so i i this is right up there with one of the most surreal sports tv moments uh, ever and i know that sounds like a pretty but it was and it was just the way that it played out on the screen so john rom as he finished his round on saturday was a six stroke leader at the memorial and the way rom can lock it down on sunday you know pretty much you know um, you know the favorite to win i would say i think that's safe to say anyway he finishes his round on Saturday. And he's, he's not even 10 feet off the green. He's still green side. So he's done. He's holed out at 354. Okay. Done. Yep. Just, you know, him and his caddy are at the bag. They're just off the green. He's approached by a PGA Tour official who's delivering him some sort of news. And apparently it's devastating because Rom drops down to basically his hands on his knees, you know, bent over. And you can tell, like, whatever this, whatever the news was, is absolutely devastating to Rom. He is sort of escorted, uh, you know, quickly sort of escorted up the hill and, you know, into, into a, pri- a private area. The camera follows his caddy is like, basically get away, get away, turn away, like pushing the camera lens away. Oh yeah. The whole thing just seemed to play out. Like it was completely unscripted. And, and uh, and I, the, I felt so bad because Jim Nance and the CBS production team were completely blindsided by this Nance was left to flap in the wind as to what news had been delivered, what devastating moment is John Romm going through right now that we here inside the truck have absolutely no clue what's going on. And and I just felt it was it was awful. As it played out, Rom had tested positive for COVID. So, you know, my question would be if the PGA tour deemed him, you know, capable and safe enough to remain around his caddy, playing partners, the fans for two more holes, only to tell him that he's you know forced to withdraw when he finished his round, all that rolled up into the fact that CBS was completely blindsided by this. I just, for me, it was the, uh, that was my the, the biggest wow moment for me on the weekend with sports TV.
1: You know, Paul, you would have experienced this for years and me too. And I'm not sure the guy at home knows how much of this goes on, but there are so many of these, I want to choose my words carefully here. Team officials who think it and, and teams like right up to general managers of professional teams who are so, oh, what's the word? I don't want to say scared. They're so not understanding of the media that they keep these secrets like the PGA tour would do there. And my initial reaction would be why the hell wouldn't you simply go into the truck and say, Mm -hmm. John Roms tested positive. We're going to go inform him now turn around and walk out. Mm-hmm. They they tell Jim Nance, Jim Nance is a friggin' professional. He's not mm-hmm. going to say a word. Mm-hmm. If you embargo that, a lot of people don't realize, Paul, I guess I can talk about this a little bit too. Information is very often embargoed to TV and we can't reveal it until a preset time. So we know a roster of Team Canada, let's say, But it's embargoed until 11 o'clock. We can't reveal it and we can't talk about it until Team Canada is announced at 11 o'clock. That happens all the time. So you would embargo that information. Nance would know it. And then when they came up to him, at least he'd know what was going on. I think that's shameful that the PGA Tour would do that to its broadcast partner. Yeah, absolutely. If I was CBS Sports, I'd be pissed. Oh,
2: and 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 if I was John Rom, I'd be pissed too. It, the whole thing was handled, I thought, in a really unprofessional manner. And the bottom line was, it gave no chance for CBS Sports to make their commentators look intelligent, or or give them any chance to properly prepare to cover. You know what I think is probably one of the most, if not the most, unprecedented
1: incidents on the tour. Look, I understand sometimes TV is going to be blindsided and the PGA Tour is going to be blindsided sometimes too when they don't know what's coming. But when you have the opportunity to inform television about something because they're your broadcast partner that that they should know, they understand they're not going to say anything until you, you give the word. But at least if they have the information they can proceed in a professional manner. And that's, that's, that's a really crap thing for the PGA tour to do. All right, Steve, let's get into the
2: meat of episode 28, which is all about Stanley cup playoff broadcasts part two. Cause if you're with us for 27, we, uh, we had some quality stuff. We've got even more stuff for 28. Uh, Steve, dare I say our cup runneth over.
1: I would not say that, but we do have quality stuff. And that is the technical term. I looked it up while you were talking there. And that is the term. The technical term is quality stuff. Do you know where cup runneth over came from, though, originally? I have no idea. But my spidey sense says if I pick the Bible, I have a decent chance of being correct. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> it was Psalms twenty-three,
2: five of the Hebrew Bible. The actual uh, quote was... My cup runneth over, or in layman's terms, abundant blessings, which, Steve, we have for this episode 28. So uh, I, I didn't mention this in episode 27, and um, I feel I need to put it on the table right now. Okay. Um, I, I have come up with a, a label, a term, a moniker, a nickname for the 2021 NHL season.
1: You came up with this yourself.
2: Mm-hmm. I did, With, yeah. Like
1: lying in bed, tossing and turning. I'm going to call the season this or how, how did this come about? Nah, just more like
2: out of the shower, brushing my teeth, kind of looking in the mirror going, yes, that's exactly
1: what this is. Wish I'd been there for that moment, everybody. But we're here for this moment when it gets revealed. I have no idea what he's about to say. Brace yourselves. If you're driving, pull over. If you're using your cell phone, put it down. The 2021 NHL
2: season will be known as project kansas steve i'm going to need a judge's ruling because i have no idea what the hell that means (laughs) i was afraid of that um so yeah here's the backstory so uh back in 1985 same year the kansas city royals won the world series but that has nothing to do with this coca-cola used the term project kansas as a code name for their new coke remember new coke I love New Coke. New Coke was the best. Oh, so you were the guy. I
1: did. I'm the, yeah, I'm one of the four guys who love four. New Coke. <laughs> okay, I'd two? like you to produce the other three. Um, <laughs> well, they're all dead from drinking New Coke.
2: Yeah. So uh, much like the complete disaster that was New Coke <laughs> for Coca-Cola, um, so has been the NHL season from a broadcast production standpoint. And by the way, I, I I don't know if it was just, I made my mom buy me a case of New Coke I think I think uh, I only cracked open one of them. I ta- I felt like it tasted like Pepsi, which I was ear, which was eerie. But anyway. I think
1: that's what they were trying to do. But how long was New Coke around? I'd have to look it up. Was it even a year?
2: No, it was months. It was months. It yeah. was months. Say. Yeah. Yeah. And as we talk about this, Max Headroom is rolling over in his grave. <laughs>
1: Max Headroom. Mem- Matt Brewer, he- right? Matt Frewer yeah. with the actor. Yeah. yeah.
2: But he was the he was the spokesman for. New Coke, remember that? Catch the Wave, remember that? That was huge on television. Remember, everybody was talking about Max Hedrum. Well, he died in 2015 after that sci-fi video game movie, Pixels. Do you remember that? Uh, No, that I'm happy to say I don't remember. He was in that with Adam Sandler and Kevin James and some other people, Uh, but anyway. Well, when you name who was in it, I can see why it died. New Coke was undrinkable, and the 2021 season... NHL from a production standpoint has been unbearable. Why has it been so bad? You just the whole thing condensed schedule uh, you know games every basically every other day, half of your games being Remy's or at home productions, which are you know a, 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 you know due to covid uh, an inexpensive sort of extremely <laughs> rudimentary way of doing television yeah, just knowing that half the shows that you do, this year are going to suck. It it really just sort of takes, takes a whack out of you from a moral standpoint as well, too.
1: (laughs) Now there's a motto. Half the shows we do this year will suck. So should that be, should that be the title of episode 28 then project Kansas? Oh, Steve. I I think that would be brilliant. Done. Brilliant. There (laughs) it is. And you see what we solved everybody at home. We solved. uh, Oh, 8,000 seems high. 7,000. Facebook messages going back and forth. What about this for a title? What about this for a title? Did I say that? Should we use that? Is that a cliche? Should this be the title? What about that for a title? E28 Project Kansas. It's done. I'm carving it in stone right now. Keeping then with the Project Kansas theme, if we go back to the end of the first round, so it's Carolina Hurricanes, Nashville Predators. Canes win the series in six. You are doing the last game in Nashville for a Carolina audience But it's not your broadcast. You're not controlling the majority of the camera. So you're kind of at the mercy of what Nashville gives you, right? 100 percent. Absolutely. Yeah. And remember, uh, because we're both regional
2: broadcasters, we both have our own regional mandates. So on every whistle, they're telling Nashville stories. And we need to tell Carolina stories with our only with two cameras that we have. So, yeah, it's heavy lifting for sure. But you
1: wouldn't tell a Carolina story every whistle. Like if Philip Forsberg did something great or UC Saros made a great save, you would stick with that. You wouldn't try to do something Carolina every whistle, right? Uh, no, I mean, there
2: is still, you still have to have journalistic integrity. Yeah. Um, you're not doing a three and a half hour infomercial uh, for the Hurricanes. I mean, yeah, basically you are, but you, you can't make it look like that. Right. So no, I mean, yeah, we we would tell the stories of the game, but on a nothing whistle, as we like to call it. So that's a whistle where nothing has happened. Right.
1: No, no highlight, no replays, nothing.
2: A lot of thought went into that name (laughs) Uh, on a nothing whistle. Yeah. We would always tell a Carolina story.
1: Truth be told, you've kind of tipped me off. So this game ends and you're at the mercy of what Nashville is giving you. And Paul Hemming. Now, this will be a shock to the podcast listeners. Paul Hemming, the director of the Carolina Hurricanes broadcast, is not happy with what he's getting from Nashville is this correct and did I read this correctly uh well I mean (laughs) uh yes partially (laughs) um yes
2: to to, and and apologies to anybody in Nashville (laughs) but but Nashville is doing a Nashville show as they should right because their entire audience couldn't give two craps about the Carolina Hurricanes, especially because we just beat them that's right they just went out yeah right so so that game for those you're not familiar that game was decided in overtime on a deflection in front by Sebastian Ajo. Uh, When that puck goes in the net, I mean, obviously it's a road win. So the crowd's not going crazy. I think you can hear like eight people have made the drive from Raleigh to cheer for the Hurricanes. There's like eight people cheering. It's pretty deathly silent. So in in a situation where the home team doesn't win, and and, and everybody can can visualize this, the handshakes happen pretty quickly, right? There's not a lot of skating around. There's not a lot of celebrating. If it was in Raleigh, there would have been a storm surge and probably and blah 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 or whatever. So right, it, would just, right. it would have taken a lot more time, right? So it doesn't. Um, so they get to handshakes pretty quick. Well, they're they're now they're shaking hands, Steve, and we have not seen a replay of the goal yet.
1: How long do you think that was? 90. No, it'd be more than 90 uh, seconds. Yeah, it's two more minutes? Than
2: ninety. It's probably between two and three minutes. And okay. we still haven't seen a replay of the goal. Okay. Yet. Yeah. So in that two to three minutes where we're waiting. Hanging on the edge of our chair for a replay of the series winning goal. I, I have a camera on Rod Brindamore, the head coach of the Hurricanes behind the bench.
1: One of the cameras that you control exclusively at that game. Correct.
2: One of my cameras was on our goalie, our celebration, you know, with and the in the pile up and stuff. And then the other one was with Rod. And the reason why I put the camera with Rod was for the exact reason that it played out. I've done hundreds of these handshakes before. And in, in a handshake situation, there's standard operating procedure where you need to see the coaches shake hands. You need to see the captains shake hands. You need to see the goalies shake hands. You need to see ex-teammates shaking hands, retired players perhaps shaking hands. Any key matchup that's happened during the series, you need to see these people shake hands. It's nice. It certainly closes the loop on things, doesn't it? as a paid professional, that's what you're there to do. Right. Yeah. You're there to put a, a bow on it, wrap it up with a bow. Right. Yeah. So it's been two or three minutes. There's players are now shaking hands. I I'm watching Rod Brindamore and I'm like, okay, uh, no, I'm not seeing the home show, the host feed uh, anywhere remotely close to coaches. Okay. And now they're about to shake hands. So I just up cut the host feed and I cut the camera two, bam. And there's Rod Brindamore shaking hands with John Hines, the assistant shakes hands. And then bam, I go back to the host feed. In that moment, I get a dirty look from my producer, Jim Malia, as if to say, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, we can't miss the coaches' shake hands. Yeah, but what about, the, what, about, what about the replay of the game winning goal, which we haven't seen yet? The series winning goal. I'm like, well, we didn't miss it, did we? You know, I, I, I get, yeah. so yeah, it worked out. But that is completely on the onus of the host feed to show. And if it doesn't, then you have to take matters
1: into your own hands and, and take care of it. And was that the tone you used with Jim? Well... I didn't think they were going to show it, so I thought I should cut to it on my own. I hope that, <laughs> lovey, that okay. with your satisfaction it, yeah, that would no, be your tone, right? No, no, it's like we—it was more like we didn't miss it. Moving on, let's go.
2: Come on, we got more. We haven't seen Nedelkovic. We haven't seen the. We haven't seen a replay. We haven't seen Sebastian Ajo. We haven't seen Jacob Slavin. We haven't seen any of this yet. Like, come on, we got work to be done. I'll tell you, the handshakes was was more. There were more more energy, more adrenaline more passionate in trying to get out of that handshake line than there was for the previous four periods.
1: That's why there's no way to accurately communicate what happens in the truck later, because you miss that whole sense of the environment, right? And when you said upcut, we should probably explain that. So you've got these two cameras, you're taking in Nashville's feed, every camera cut they make, but when you want to put in one of your own cameras, you're gambling because you don't really know what's going to happen on their feed when you slam your own camera in, right? Yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah. So for that moment, when I, when I cut away to show Brendan Moore and Sh- John Hines shake hands in my mind was if I saw the first frame of a replay that I saw, I was just going to dissolve back to it quickly. So we would have missed the replay effect or whatever, but we wouldn't have missed what we needed to. That was for me in that moment in my mind, I was ready to do
1: that. And you know what? I think that's, you probably wouldn't have cut to the coach's handshakes. Maybe if you were, right at the beginning of your career as a director but you tell me when i'm wrong but now not only did you do it you had a backup plan when you did it and that's what experience gets you right
2: yeah exactly i mean when you're young in your career and you don't have the experience um, or you haven't been in that moment before yeah chances of you pulling the trigger on that cutter are very slim right yeah but when you've done it a hundred times you've got you've got two bullets in the chamber one that if it goes wide And then this next one, so you can hit the
1: target. That's right. And you make that decision instantly. You see it's coming and you commit to that decision and you make it, right? There's no, well, should I do this? Shouldn't I do this? Because if you do that, moment gone, right?
2: No, it's one of the 3,000 decisions that you make in the middle of a broadcast. Yeah. Those overtimes are a great deal for you because you get paid extra, right? Oh, bonus hockey, Steve. (laughs) Yeah. Not yet. Actually, I think... If you factor in all the minutes that I actually worked in that series, I probably end up making about $6 an hour. Yeah, I was going to say you lose money
1: when they go into overtime. I do. I, I just picture you, as, I picture you as Daffy Duck in that, you know, that cartoon, the, the Bugs Bunny cartoon where he runs and just in the cave and he dives into the jewels. I think that's yeah. you when you get home from <laughs> the games, right? Isn't that yeah. right? You know
2: what time they d- dropped the puck in that game six it was 945 Eastern time. Oh, wow. So it was 845 in Nashville. It was, a, it was an NHL classic flex where they tried to make a Nashville game, a West Coast start. So really
1: love them for that. Project Kansas, baby. Yeah, no kidding. So the cool thing about that series that you did was you had the last four games in that series, three, four, five, and six, all went to overtime. And that's only happened two other times in the history of the Stanley Cup playoffs. So I think I texted you this, like, hey, that's really cool. The 1951 Stanley Cup final, Toronto, Montreal, five games, every game went into overtime. Bill Barilko scored on Jerry O'Neill in game five, then got on the plane with Henry Hudson. That didn't go so well.
0: Hold up, golden boy. That Canadian's goalie was Jerry McNeil, not Jerry O'Neill. McNeil minded net for the Habs for the duration of his NHL career from 1948 to 56. His best season was 52 53 when McNeil won the Stanley Cup, was named to the second All Star team, and led the NHL in shutouts with 10 in 66 games. Try to keep up.
1: And Tragically Hip got to write a song about it, 50 Mission Cap. And then I said to you, and it also happened in 2012 in the conference quarterfinal between Phoenix and Chicago. And you said Guess what, Steve? <laughs> I directed that series too. I had no idea. I, <laughs> I had no idea, man, for TSN?
2: Yeah, I did it for TSN. Yep. Yeah. What do you remember about that series? I just remember that travel was a nightmare. Travel and again working overtime was but it was a it was a crazy series. We had, uh, again, six degrees of separations within the Tide to Truck podcast here, Steve. Our, our analyst for that series was one Mike Johnson. Um, and oh, so no Johnny kidding. was between the... Be- yeah, Johnny had a front row seat. He was between the benches for all these games. And it was classic. The first five games of the series went into overtime. And that, at that point, that was only the second time in NHL history that that had happened, right? But it was a physical, dirty series. I, I, I don't know. I'll, 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 I'll take you back. Um, in game... Two, Andrew Shaw just tried to absolutely decapitate Mike Smith, and and ran him. And uh, he was on the ice for like I don't know, it seemed like five or ten minutes. It was, you know, we, we were worried that he was, you know, Mike Smith was seriously injured. Andrew Shaw ends up getting a three-game suspension in Game Two, wow. and then of course eye for an eye, right? The next game, uh, Rafi Torres. Just tries to absolutely separate Marion Hose's upper half of his
1: body from his lower half of his body. Do you remember what he got suspension-wise for that? I I don't. I know it was substantial. I didn't even remember that it was that series. Oh yeah. 25
2: game suspension, including the preseason. The entire, yeah. So yeah, it was uh it was it was an ugly, nasty series. But the hero of that series was Mikhail Bodker, who had he had the game winning uh goal in overtime in both uh games four and five. Uh, Of that series. So it was unbelievable TV. I'll I'll never forget it. Um, It was uh, Johnny was just like, for those of you that listened to the Mike Johnson episode, I believe it was episode 21. It was here, Johnny. um, He talks about that he lives on talkback. So that's the button that you depress when you want to talk to the truck, but you don't want your microphone to go on air. And Johnny, and also, it also kind of works too, is if you need to mute it, um, in case there's like any sort of profanity that's going on down at Ice Level or whatever, but right. the one thing I remember from that series was Johnny's button was always pushed for the whole game because if it wasn't Johnny going, Oh my God, like it was, it was like, it was players yapping at each other and, you know, at center ice between the benches with stuff that was not ready for, you know, prime time. So yeah. It was just, it was just a wild series and, you know, all the extra time that we did in overtime. And like I said, it was crazy travel for some reason. There was like no direct from Chicago to Phoenix. So it was just, you know, and then we were losing time every time, you know, we go back to the West and stuff. It was just, it was a grind of a series, but man, my favorite souvenir from that series was from a street vendor out front in Glendale. Uh, out front of uh the arena they were selling uh these white t-shirts with just black simple font that said free Raffy," like free Raffy torres right it's just like i think i spent like i think i ironically i think i spent 25 bucks on the t-shirt but it was classic so yeah that was uh yeah it's pretty cool that um you know something that's only happened three times in nhl history i've been been able to be a part of two of those that's pretty cool
1: my biggest takeaway from that story is you flew commercial? You guys weren't on a private jet going back and forth? No, those days were at TSN were commercial. Yeah. Oh, that's barbaric. That's barbaric. Good for points. Bad for your life. One of the things that I don't think viewers realize is when there's a game in, let's say, Tampa, the feed doesn't go just from Tampa straight to. Somewhere in Carolina, and then distributed from there. There is no such thing as a straight feed from one rink to a television production facility in the other city. It just never happens, right? Right. No, there's a,
2: there's a path of transmission, and that goes to a central location where the signal is then distributed from. So right. So in the bally sports world that distribution center uh, currently is the Woodlands, which is in Houston,
1: Texas. And so with every distribution point, there's a chance for, what would you call it? (laughs) Distribution point error. I was gonna use a different word that started with F and ended with up, but I'm not gonna use that. There's a different point for a distribution point error and when those happen, those are those are really fun for production teams. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. I've been a part of some awesome fups in my career. There's nothing you can do, right? There's nothing no, you there's can nothing. do. You're, you're just completely there, completely
2: helpless. So, so I will share this story, Steve. And <laughs> I I want to preface it or disclaim it with the fact that I love the production team in Tampa. Uh, I love Fox. Uh, sorry, Valley. Oop, there's a fine. I love Bally Sports Sun. I love Valley Sports Florida. Love everything about it, but there was a major fup uh, at the end of game one for that it greatly affected the Tampa Lightning post-game show.
1: So the game ends, and who's the host broadcaster? NBC? NBC, correct. Okay, so the game ends, but now you're going to do a Carolina post-game show and Tampa's going to do a Tampa post-game show?
2: That's right, yep. So what happens is NBC hits their first commercial break after they sign off, and we're allowed to go on the air. Right. So, so that the game was in Raleigh that night. And so in Raleigh, we're sitting there in a production truck and, uh, we're, you know, three, two, one and roll headlines and boom, we're on the air. So, uh, we get into our first block and first blocks done hit commercial. I looked down at my phone. My phone's blowing up with messages. Messages are from Doug Yalaki, who is my counterpart in Tampa. Now they're sitting in Tampa waiting to get on the air still for their post game show. And Doug's saying like, we're watching your show. You guys are on the air. Your show looks great. We're not on the air yet. And I'm like, what you're not on the air yet. I mean, we were like 10 minutes into our show. How come you're not on the air? And uh he said, with transmission issues. I'm like, Oh, Okay. So anyway, you know, back in three, two, one, boom, second block. You know, we do another 10, 12 minute block.
1: Yeah, because you don't care. That's not your show. You don't care. <laughs> well, I, I feel bad because that could easily be me. I know, right? but you, it's yeah. not like you can sit and text nothing, them for an hour. I, I know. Can, you, no, yeah. right. Yeah, there's
2: nothing yeah. I can do, right? I feel yeah. awful. But yeah. anyway, we go to, we do our second block. We go to commercial again. I looked down, my phone's got, I got more messages from Doug. <laughs> Doug's like, we're still not on the air. Your show looks great, by the way. We're not on the air yet. I'm like, what is going on? He's like, transmission. I'm like, you know, buddy, good luck. I-, I hope you get it sorted out. Anyway, we go through, we plow through, we do a four-segment show that works out to almost 50 minutes. Five-zero. Five-zero. I get off the air. I look down at my phone. I'm still getting messages from Doug. We're still not on the air yet. And you're off the air. Oh yeah, this is like almost an hour after the game. Long story short, I'm driving home. Now I'm home. I'm getting ready for bed. I'm getting messages. We're still not on the air yet. I'm like, I, I get into bed. I like, Doug, it's lights out for me, buddy. Uh, let's check back in in the morning. He's like, we're still not on the air yet. And they're just <laughs> sitting yeah. there ready to go as soon as somebody says 100%. It's just, it's like the woodlands, though. So the transmission commanding point cannot see them. So there's no show to broadcast because they don't have a signal. Right. Anyway, I'll cut fast forward to the next morning. Doug calls me first thing. I don't even think he has coffee yet. And he's like, you're never gonna believe what happened.
1: Oh, so he he gets the postmortem here.
2: Oh yeah. I'm like, okay, so what happened? And he's like, so their transmission path was not Tampa directly to the woodlands in Houston of and then it was to the world. No, of course it not. It was Tampa to Fort Lauderdale. Right. And Fort Lauderdale to the woodlands. Of course. But what happened was that night in Fort Lauderdale, there was no Panthers. There was no, you know, Miami Heat. There was no Miami Marlins. So there wasn't much going on. So dead zone It was a dead zone. I see like one guy there who's just responsible for putting one cable in the wall, which is the Tampa feed to the woodlands. And he decided that, you know, I think I'm just going to go get Jersey Mike's for dinner and uh, I'll be back later. And later was three hours. Oh and so God. for three hours, that little cable wasn't stuck in that one port where it was supposed to go to get the feed to Houston. So they waited for three hours. Tampa wins game one, and they're on their post show goes to
1: air three hours after the game was over. And there's nothing more frustrating as a production person, right? You've got everything ready to go, mm-hmm. and you hear the the three worst were the four worst. We can't see you. Correct. Oh, you know. why? Why can't they see us? And then it's like this, uh, for in Doug's case, hours long mm-hmm. deconstruct about why? Why can't they see us? You know, right, can exactly. they see us here? Can they see us there? Can they? Oh my! Oh, it's God. it's forensic, right? It's forensic. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. That's right. exactly
2: what it is. Okay, so we're good. We're good from Tampa to Fort Lauderdale,
1: right? Can they okay, see us in Fort yeah. Lauderdale? Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah and then cut to, cut to the guy at the drive-through window. Yeah, I'll have a I'll have a large fry and uh, you know, and that it was it was one guy that that derailed their show for
1: 3 hours. He's, he's at the drive-through. Oh my god. You you
2: cannot make that up. <laughs> no.
1: Unreal. And you know what? If it happens 50 times, It's 50 different reasons that it happened. It's never the same reason. That's what makes it impossible to figure out. Mm -hmm. Never the same thing twice. And sometimes inside the truck turns into outside the truck. (laughs) Outside your mind. Mm -hmm. Q&A, what do you got, buddy? All right, buddy.
2: Q&A, as always, presented by Conquest Hockey, uncompromising premium hockey athletic wear. Work, win, repeat. Now, Steve, we are breaking new ground on E twenty eight. Oh, I like that. Typically, we you know have our questions submitted via social media, true, and whether our Twitter or our Instagram account, and uh, we just read that question, and then we you know we we get into our in depth answer. But uh, we are going to try something different this week. Um, I had a question submitted to us via a voice memo which I thought was outstanding. And it comes to us from Franklin Rubinstein. Uh, Franklin is sort of my counterpart at TSN. He's a live sports TV director at TSN, and he works on many big shows. He directs the CFL on TSN for them. Yep. He directs their NHL hockey. Uh, leafs you know uh, senators jets packages and he also is the second director on the world uh junior hockey championships as well too so you would have been treated to many uh, of his uh, fine broadcasts anyways uh, the floor is now franklin's for his question to us for episode 28
1: hi paul and steve i absolutely love the pod my question stems from one of steve's tweets i recently read Steve indicated that often directors aren't quick enough to cut tight off of game camera and to quote, just stay wider, folks. While I deeply respect Steve and other producers' opinions, I do not share this belief. I find too often directors aren't smart aggressive and staying wide doesn't convey the speed of the NHL game to the viewer at home. My question for both of you, what is your live action game cut philosophy? Oh, I like that question. I have to qualify, though. The tweet I sent that Franklin read was about when there's a scrum and directors will sometimes cut tight to an individual or two inside a scrum. And then of course, by its own nature, a scrum has things happening in different areas and there's no way to be quick enough to cut around to those. That's what I was referring to, but we should talk about conveying the speed of a game. I don't know what your thought is. I think it's damn near impossible to convey the speed of a game, no matter what camera you're on. Uh, yeah,
2: especially if we're, if we're gonna talk hockey here. Yeah. Um, then yeah, I mean, hockey is the fastest sort of human sport on the planet, right? Let's uh, eliminate auto racing and and, that's, and motorbike racing and stuff, but just of yep. athletes, you know, uh, and they're on their own two feet, it's the fastest sport. So yeah, I mean, if you sit down at the glass at an NHL game, it's not going to be the same as if you put a camera at the glass in an NHL game. No. Um, So yeah, that, that, that's, that's statement. One is it's would be impossible to actually translate it in real, you know, in real life or real speed. But what I will say is there's lots of opportunity to convey the speed and the physical play that is involved in an NHL game. And to do that, there's two or three cameras that you lean on, on a regular basis or in a regular cut pattern to be able to accomplish that.
1: Okay, so you're talking about low cameras, right? Because the lower you are, the faster it shows the speed. But as a director, how do you know when to go to those cameras? Because somebody who's not experienced often goes late or stays on it too long. How do you learn that pattern? You, you have to know the game first of all, agree. right? That that's that that's not, step
2: one is you have to understand the game. Yeah. Step two is you have to understand the game at the NHL level as well too. Okay, because cutting an NHL game is completely different than say cutting a college women's hockey game. I'm not saying one is better than the other, or anything, but they're two completely different games, right? Yes. On on a certain play in an NHL game, you would expect the players to do the same thing all the time, right? Whereas on a lesser level, a lesser caliber event, um, buckle up because anything could happen. So, yes, say to cut to cut a breakout on an NHL game. You know, you can do that. You know, from various ways. You can do it from the tight follow camera. You can do it from the handheld that's at ice level in that corner. If you have a speed shot, you could do it from the speed shot, which is a robotic camera above the penalty box at center ice. There's different options that you can mix that up, where you can get low and and show the speed of the breakout. If you're cutting, say, the Air Canada Cup or something, some, you know, national amateur hockey in Canada, nine times out of 10, the players are going to do something completely different every time, which is not standard or whatever. So you can get burned easily by cutting there. You know, it's like anything in life. It's a pattern. And once you've got the, once you've cracked the code, I won't say it becomes easy, but uh, it's certainly the degree of difficulty certainly lessens.
1: I will say this, and I haven't said this on this podcast before, and I'll deny that I ever said it, but I think directing most of the time is harder than producing because there is no downtime in your head as a director. You're always thinking ahead, whereas a producer actually has time to think and has time to go, oh, what am I going to do here? I don't ever remember a director saying, oh, what am I going to do here? It's always moving forward. So when you see, say, as a director, and I, I don't know if you're going to be able to answer this question. We haven't talked about it before. You see Shea Weber behind the net and he's about to start out. At what point do you decide or do you do it even before you decide to cut to a tight camera? How do you, how do you as a director work that pattern? Well, I'm going to let
2: my secret out of the bag here, Steve. Okay. I, I make that cut based on watching the game camera because the game camera will tell me where Shea's going to go with the puck, right? I'm not watching Shea Weber, because if I'm watching Shea Weber, I'm watching the wrong person. So
1: you trust that that your tight camera is going to have Shea Weber?
2: No, my game camera,
1: the wide yeah, play-by-play camera, yeah. But when you're going to cut off oh, that camera, yeah, no, yeah. Oh, you no, trust I, that he's there.
2: Yeah, I quick glance to see that it's there okay, and, and, okay. and in and focus and framed up, yeah. Okay. But I, I make my cut based on what's happening on the game camera. So let's take it a step further. Let's say the puck is going from the right part of your screen to the left part of your screen. It's a dump in with a D-man retrieval, but the dump in doesn't make it all the way to the goal line. It kind of comes up somewhere around the half boards, right? Uh, You know, sort of halfway around the circle. The D-man's wheeling back. I'm watching the game camera because the game camera will tell me, do I take this retrieval off the tight follow camera? Or do I roll the dice and get down low and take it off the handheld camera? Because I know the defense is going to scoop it up and come around behind the net and go the other way.
1: But he might not. He might just he turn might in not. the circle and head back up Correct. the ice, right? In which case, Correct. you're going to get his hind end leaving that corner camera, right? Right. And that's a bad cut, right? right. So you don't make that one.
2: So right. I so I, I, I watch the game camera to see to pick my points. And that's not just on breakouts. that's on dump-ins where the D man's going to get flattened by a four checking forward. It's on all kinds of plays. I will, I will watch in my mind. I divide the, I divide the ice up into four zones. So just take the ice divide it in half uh, vertically and divide it in half horizontally. And so I, I cut the ice up into four quadrants and depending on where the puck has is coming from and where it's going in that quadrant tells me what camera I'm going to cut.
1: I loved how you closed your eyes there when you were thinking about that. And I could actually see a little smoke puff mm-hmm. out of, of both your ears. So I, he's thinking hard on this one. I love <laughs> when we do this podcast and I learn stuff. That is a very cool answer. Thanks, man.
2: So the aspiring directors, I encourage you the next time you do a show, use your game camera. Okay. It's it's a lot more than just a safe spot to be during play. Use it as a reference point for when you're going to make your low cuts. And I guarantee you'll be able to make them quicker because the key to cutting low is to get there early and be gone early. You don't want to cut a You don't want to cut a low camera and get there late and be hanging around too, too long. Okay. Because the puck will be gone and it'll just be a shot of the D man skating up the ice, which nobody wants to see. Yeah. You know, when, like I said, that one showed up on my phone in a voice memo form, and I was like, I love that. I love that he messaged it to us. And I, I thought it was excellent that um Franklin, who is a an avid inside the truck listener, uh gets to be a part of the show as well, too. So thanks for that, Franklin. Our QA segment, as always, presented by Conquest Hockey for all your premium hockey athletic wear needs. Check them out at conquesthockey.co and use the promo code INSIDE15 for 15% off your next order. Okay, so that'll do it for episode 28. Remember, if you have not already done so, hit the subscribe button on your favorite platform. Don't forget to follow Inside the Truck on Twitter, Inside the Truck Podcast on Instagram to keep up to date with what's going on with the show. And you can also subscribe to our Inside the Truck channel on YouTube
1: for all kinds of
2: bonus content.
1: If you enjoyed this episode and you know someone that you think might also like it, be sure to let them know about Inside the Truck. And don't forget, this is episode 28. There are 27 more just like this beauty on every platform out there. I'm Steve Lansky. He's Paul Hemming. That's it for today. You keep listening in Atlanta, Georgia, the home of old Coke, new Coke, but, Paul, most importantly, Project Kansas. (laughs) Yes, Steve. You keep listening in Atlanta, and we'll keep bringing you Inside the Truck. Catch, 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 catch. Catch the wave.